0: It's the DKB Radio Hour. I'm Spencer Cannon. This episode is brought to you by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and is accredited by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine. Welcome to part two of our series on the diagnosis and treatment of hepatitis C. In part one, we talked with experts about the growing burden of HCV infection in the U.S., especially among people who inject drugs. Dr. Mark Solkowski. Professor of Medicine and Medical Director of the Viral Hepatitis Center at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and Dr. Kathleen Brady, Distinguished University Professor at the Medical University of South Carolina and Director of the South Carolina Clinical and Translational Research Institute, speaking from the 2017 American Society of Addiction Medicine, or ASAM, conference in New Orleans, highlighted the importance of screening for HCV, and the barriers that often prevent clinicians from screening at-risk people and linking chronically infected patients to care. In Part 2, we will discuss the imperative of early treatment for these chronically infected patients and the game-changing efficacy of the newly available therapies. On our show today, Reversing the Tide by Curing HCV. To receive CME or CEU credit, visit www.starthcv.dkbmed.com. It's no exaggeration to say that recently-approved novel therapies for HCV are game-changers. Previously, the treatment of HCV was frankly medieval. It involved long courses of treatment with interferon-based therapies, which made most patients horribly ill and cured only a fraction. Here's Dr. Solkowski from ASAM, describing his experience.
1: Now- Up until 2014, we used Interferon. Now, I've spent the last couple of years trying to forget the days of Interferon because it made my life miserable, it made my patients miserable with side effects. Treatment lasted nearly a year, 48 weeks, and it made everyone feel lousy. Patients came to me, they felt well, I gave them a liver biopsy, and gave them Interferon made them sick for a year. Not good times in the hepatitis C therapeutic arena.
0: Not good times is an understatement. Research showed that response to interferon is genetically determined and varied dramatically by individual and HCV genotype. As a result, only a minority of people responded to treatment, and even fewer achieved sustained viral suppression. For this slim chance at a cure, patients suffered from side effects for nearly a year. This all changed with the introduction of interferon-free regimens that are effective across patient populations and genotypes. These regimens use combinations of direct-acting antivirals, or DAAs, which target specific proteins in HCV and inhibit its replication. Combination of DAAs are required because the virus rapidly becomes resistant to individual agents. We called Dr. Raymond Chunk, director of Hepatology and Liver Center at Massachusetts General Hospital, to tell us more about these new combination regimens and their efficacy across hepatitis C genotypes.
2: Now, the original treatment regimens or combination therapies of direct acting antivirals or DAAs were mainly directed against the dominant genotype worldwide, that is to say, genotype 1 infection. So with the success in genotype 1, we actually found ourselves with a lagging performance of persons with chronic hepatitis C that was attributable to genotypes two, and three infection. And it was what the introduction of agents that had more so-called pan-genotypic activity, that is to say molecules that worked effectively against each of the six major genotypes of FSEs, that we found ourselves increasingly moving toward a one-size-fits-all type of approach for treatment with small-molecule, direct-acting antiviral combinations. And so, with the pan-genotypic regimens that have included sophosphavir in conjunction with velpatasvir, as one example, another example has included the most recently approved glucaprovir and pibrentasvir. we are now again seeing 95 to 100% rates of sustained response for genotypes 1 through 6, including genotypes 2 and 3, which had historically become more difficult to treat compared to the success we've just seen with genotype 1. It should also be noted that not only is success possible with, again, durations ranging from 8 to 12 weeks, but it should also be noted that these regimens are extremely well-tolerated with very low premature discontinuation rates owing to intolerance described in both clinical trials as well as in the real-world experience thus far. So we are now seeing, by virtue of both efficacy, as well as tolerability, the delivery of cure to many more patients than we could have imagined using the old interferon-centered strategy.
0: As Dr. Chung described, multiple highly effective regimens are now available, and new drugs continue to be developed. These regimens require shorter courses of treatment and are far more tolerable and effective than previous interferon-based therapies. They also work across HCV genotypes, further simplifying treatment. This is one of those rare and exciting times in medicine when something that was once very difficult to treat and caused suffering and death is now rapidly curable for almost all affected patients. Let's bring the discussion back to your practices and how treatment plays out in the addiction medicine setting. In part one of this series, Dr. Sulkowski introduced Teresa, a young woman with a history of opioid addiction who discovered she had HCV when her baby boy presented with jaundice. From ASAM, Dr. Sokowski continues Teresa's story.
1: Sometimes patients really stick with you, and it really bothered me that she didn't start treatment. And that's why I was really surprised and really happy when about six months later, her name showed up on my Monday afternoon schedule. And I thought, well, maybe she'll come. But then again, she missed the last six appointments, so... I'm not so confident. So, but you know, I got a lot of charts I got to update, and I've got some notes to do. So I'll just work in in the office, and maybe she'll come. Well, she showed up, and you know, she brought back, you know, drove two and a half hours into Hopkins, brought with her her child, who's now about two years old. Same partners with her, and you know, like you might expect, she had a story to tell. And her story was in part that she had untreated or inadequately treated depression, anxiety and really wanted to get off her buprenorphine program too quickly and what did that lead to it led to her relapsing into using narcotics again but to her credit she's back on track this time she's taking methadone she's also taking antidepressant medication back in school and and really committed really dedicated again she did update me on a story Related to her son, and that's that. While she was at Hopkins, she had seen our pediatric hepatologist. There's not many of them, but we have someone who specializes in liver disease in children. And she brought a two-year-old there, and she was a bit devastated. So what they told her is that there are now treatments for kids who are 12 and older, but we don't treat children. We don't worry; they live just fine with their hepatitis C. They go to school. There's no limitations. It's not a big deal. Your son will be fine, and we'll treat him when he gets a little bit older. And again, she's really devastated about that, and
0: back on track with treatment. Like many people who struggle with addiction, Teresa had some setbacks and challenges as she tried to stay off opioids and on track for HCV treatment. In the past, clinicians debated if patients like Teresa were good candidates for therapy. We wondered how patients like Teresa should be managed now, in the era of direct-acting antivirals. To answer this question, Let's go back to Dr. Chung. What do evidence and guidelines tell us about which patients should now be treated for HCV? Dr. Chung?
2: So when we think about persons for whom treatment should be initiated, there has now, with the really resounding success and tolerability of these direct-acting antiviral combination regimens, a view that every patient with chronic hepatitis C, by virtue of our ability to succeed in curing those infections with great success should be offered therapy for their chronic hepatitis C. In other words, there are very few reasons to not treat patients with chronic hepatitis C because of the success of therapy and because of the long-term complications that can actually develop not just with advanced fibrosis, but we are now learning that there are increasingly extrapatic complications of hepatitis C that can develop even in persons with early stage disease, such as, for instance, kidney disease or cryoglobulinemia, to name two examples, it is incumbent on us to really recognize any chronically infected person and to treat and eliminate their infection and in so doing to arrest and effectively reverse the natural history of that disease. So the only persons for whom treatment is really not recommended at this juncture would be those persons who have short life expectancies that cannot be remediated by treating the hepatitis C or by transplanting their livers or by other directed treatments. So again, given the extraordinary tolerability and efficacy of these regimens, the guidance from the ASLD and IDSA really have broadly liberalized those recommendations of persons who should be treated. I think an important corollary of this universal treatment recommendation is that persons who inject drugs, either currently or who have recently injected drugs, should not be viewed as ineligible for treatment a number of studies have now demonstrated comparable success rates in producing sustained virologic response among persons who inject drugs.
0: The AASLD guidelines are clear. Nearly all patients with HCV should be treated without delay. And this guidance aligns with clinical trial evidence showing high cure rates across patient populations. Furthermore, Studies from real-world clinical settings also report cure rates of 95% or more across populations, including patients with HIV co-infection or cirrhosis. Here's Dr. Sulkowski from ASAM talking about treating patients in the addiction medicine setting.
1: Well, what about persons in opioid agonist therapy settings, people in addiction treatment programs? Well, a very important study, which is called C-Edge CoStar, used Elbosvir-Grizopavir, a one-tablet, once-a-day regimen. They gave it for 12 weeks. Now, what was different about this study, so I mentioned that there's no requirement for clean time or clean urines. In this study, they allow people in the study, if they were actively using illicit drugs, and we'll get to some of that data in a minute, and they gave people one pill for 12 weeks. So the first question is, what was their adherence? Well, more than 95% of people took 96% or greater of the doses, So the adherence was great. Now, all these people were in opioid agonist therapy and many of them in drug treatment settings. Now, there is one issue here, which I'll come back to, which is reinfection. If you look on reinfection, there were five individuals in this clinical trial who were cured, proven to be cured, and had a new strain of hepatitis C during the follow-up. Only five. Three were all at one center in Thailand suggesting that perhaps the harm reduction strategies weren't quite up to par at that one setting. I can't say that for sure, but other settings, there were only two patients out of more than nearly 200 that were reinfected. I'm gonna come back to that point in a minute. But I mentioned active drug use. Well, these figures, this is an atypical figure for a hep C paper. These are positive urine tox screens. This is during the immediate, and then there was a delayed treatment phase. 60% tested positive for one of these substances. You can see cocaine around 10%, opiates somewhere around 20%, benzos, cannabinoids, amphetamines. So individuals not only had positive eutox at entry, they used drugs for the entire 12 weeks and still achieved very high sustained virologic response rates. So as long as your patient can adhere, they may be a very good
0: treatment candidate. This all might sound too good to be true. New therapies that safely cure almost all patients with a life-threatening disease, regardless of substance use or most comorbidities. As our experts have described, the new HCV regimens are effective, so long as patients adhere to therapy. And this is where the rubber meets the road, especially in addiction medicine. To discuss the importance of adherence and strategies to help, here's Dr. Kathleen Brady from ASAM discussing this important issue.
3: Suboptimal exposure can actually be associated with decreased sustained virologic rates, and the threshold for not having that happen is greater than 85% adherence. So we really need to make sure that people are taking their medications in the way they're prescribed, and this needs to be emphasized by their health care providers. What are the barriers to adherence? Well, one is the duration of treatment. As you'll hear, currently treatment can be over in 12 weeks or three months, which is maybe not that long. But when you're talking about somebody who is asymptomatic and taking a treatment for something that right now they're they're not feeling sick, that can actually be a long time. And in the past, treatment was longer and the duration of therapy really was a problem. Perceptions about complex medication regimens, again, as you're going to hear, most of the medication regimens that are used now are much simpler. That wasn't always the case. Again, issues with side effects and adverse events, people worried about that. Cost, insurance coverage, lack of social support, so it's really good if there's others in somebody's life, people that they live with, to talk to them also about the importance of medication adherence. Psychiatric disorders in particular, PTSD and depression, appear to be associated with poorer adherence, and in some cases, an active substance use disorder can be problematic in terms of adherence. In one analysis of 12 HCV adherence studies, they found fair evidence to support a couple of things. One was a systems-level intervention, which was really directly observed therapy within substance use treatment facilities. And anybody who's worked in a methadone treatment facility will know that that's not an unusual concept, is that people come in and take their medications at least five days a week in an observed manner. Regimen-related, if people are on complex pill regimens, packaging those pills with daily aliquots can be important. Patient-level interventions can include structured patient education and support systems like phone call reminders, case management, that sort of thing. So really... The main things that we've shown can be helpful in addressing barriers to adherence are phone or email reminders, and by that I mean there may be phone apps, there are a number of those that can help people by, you know, giving, I heard somebody's alarm go off in here, by setting alarm that goes off at the time they're supposed to take their medications, case management, pill organizers, again, information, and then aggressive management of side effects, and directly observed therapy.
0: Good adherence is essential to achieving cure. Here's Dr. Sokowski again from ASAM describing the role of adherence in Teresa's case.
1: Now, you heard the issues of adherence and importance on treatment. So one of the things I'm asking myself now is, is she truly ready for treatment? I felt like I was a bit naive the time before because I was convinced she was on the right track and ready for treatment, and she really wasn't. So what we often do when we're not sure if someone's ready... We ordered some lab tests, updated their viral load, and scheduled her FOP appointment for two weeks later. And part of the logic there is actions speak louder than words. So if she's ready for treatment, she'll show up for that appointment. And lo and behold, two weeks later, she's there, and she wants to start treatment again. So we went through the process, another prior authorization. I, and to be honest, I was a bit concerned. They might say, hey, we did this once before for this person. Are you sure? But they didn't. They went through. We were able to get her access to treatment. Now, in our system, we have developed a program to, to try to really work well with patients to ensure adherence. We actually give our patients a color assignment, red, green, or yellow. The green patients, they're the ones that don't need any help with treatment or adherence. They're the ones who call us up and say, I was 30 minutes late on my dose of hep C therapy. Is that okay? And you say, yes, it's fine. Stop calling. It's, it's okay. You can take the medication 30 minutes late. The yellow patients need some support. We often ask them to come in for teaching, go through their con meds, and and kind of get them track on track. And the red patients, sometimes they come in once a week for a pillbox to fill. Now, she lives far away, so we couldn't really make her a red patient with weekly pillboxes, but we could reach out and contact her methadone program and talk to them about the idea of, will you work with us and will you help us commit to hepatitis C treatment? They were happy to do that. She ended up taking your medications at home and not directly observe therapy, and she did great with it.
0: Let's take a moment to reflect on what we've learned. We know that HCV is especially common among people who inject drugs, and we should screen all at-risk patients. For patients who are chronically infected, a variety of new treatments with extremely high cure rates are available, and guidelines support their use in almost every case so long as patients can adhere to therapy. And our experts outline some strategies to promote adherence, including communication and coordination between treatment clinics and addiction centers. But this isn't the end of the story. Even when patients are cured of HCV, they may still be at risk for reinfection. Here's Dr. Solkowski to discuss the risk for reinfection and strategies to mitigate this risk. So, reinfection is certainly possible, and I want
1: every person I cure to know that if they're re-exposed, they could be reinfected, but I want them also to understand that there are ways to prevent that. There's needle exchange, use of clean needles, clean equipment. There's uh, addiction treatment services, and clearly, we want to link people into addiction treatment programs. So, how many patients get reinfected? Well, in a recent systematic review. If they were low risk, so a baby boomer who may have injected during the Woodstock era, but hasn't used drugs in 30 years, reinfection really doesn't occur. High risk, people who had recently injected drugs, maybe 10%. Among HIV-infected patients, this number is a bit higher, but here you also see higher rates of sexual transmission among HIV-positive men who have sex with men, many of whom are engaging in high-risk sex because they are zero-sorting by HIV status. So we don't think the rates are that high. In fact, in our clinic at Johns Hopkins, we've only seen a handful of individuals, two to be precise, who have been reinfected. There may be a publication bias here, but nonetheless, it's important that patients know there is no vaccine and there's no immunity. Now, there are also novel strategies. Social network-based treatment is being investigated. What the figure shows is these clusters. We saw that in Scott County, Indiana. Well, if you can find the person who's the hyper spreader, the one who's sharing needles or equipment, and treat that person, you can essentially derail a cluster. And that's what's being tested. The idea, you don't just treat an individual, you treat that individual and his or her injecting network. A very novel strategy, but I think it will work to prevent reinfection.
0: Because reinfection is possible, we need to be mindful of ways to limit this risk such as the social network-based strategy described by Dr. Sulkowski. The potential for reinfection is not a reason not to treat in the first place, but it is an important reason to maintain close follow-up with patients after they complete therapy and achieve cure. Let's return to New Orleans to hear how Teresa did with treatment and follow-up.
1: Now, in hepatitis C, we have a visit three months after your last dose of treatment. She took a one-pill, one day one regimen, Took it for eight weeks, three months later it comes back in, we check a viral load, we do that hepatitis C RNA test, and it's not detected in the blood. Now, what that means is we put that smoldering fire in her liver out. She's now achieved what we call a sustained virologic response. Now, I gotta tell you, I hate the term sustained virologic response. I mean, what does that really mean? Well, it means a cure. And part of the thing that I really want you to leave here with is the idea that hepatitis C can be cured, and you should use the word cure in your conversations with individuals who are hepatitis infected. It's a powerful word, and it's something we do every day in our clinical practice. We cure patients. Now, at that three-month visit post-treatment, I was able to tell her she'd been cured, but that's not really the end of the story, and the care continuum or care cascade doesn't end with cure because there is the risk that she could be reinfected. There is no vaccine for hepatitis C. There's one for A, there's one for B, but not C. And there's no immunity. People can become infected again, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But I want to make sure that she understands that she could be reinfected if she were exposed. And as we talked about, hepatitis C is very contagious on contaminated needles, equipment, or other works used to inject drugs. So it's not inevitable though, She's on a methadone program. We've got access to clean needles in her community. I I really wanna talk to her quite frankly and honestly about the risk of reinfection so she understands that. And I schedule all my patients to come back and see me one year after they finish treatment. And the reason I do that is I wanna check in to see how they're doing. If my patient had cirrhosis before I cured them, I wanna make sure they're not drinking again. Because a funny thing happens, You say to someone, you can't drink alcohol because you have hepatitis C. Then you say your hepatitis C is cured. And many people say one plus one equals I can drink again because I'm cured of hepatitis C. And we really want to emphasize that people with advanced liver disease, which I would describe as about 75,000 miles on your liver or so stage two or three disease, you really can't drink. You need to baby your liver so it can heal. So I like to bring it back at one year, reassess alcohol patterns. And we've seen that people do return to drinking and that may not be okay, depending on where their liver was. And for people like Therese, I want to make sure she's still on the right track. Is she still doing well with her addiction? Has she been reinfected? And for a lot of these people, we check a viral load every six to 12 months to make sure they're still free of hepatitis C virus to try to intervene quickly if there's a problem. So she came back in and doing great, doing very well, got a job, continued to take classes at the community college, and probably the most exciting thing, pregnant again. She's got a new partner that has been coming with her, stood by her side through all that trouble and threw her side on treatment. And now she's got a baby on the way. And what's really important is that she knows that when she delivers that baby, that baby will not be hepatitis C infected. It will carry her antibodies for about a year or so, but it will not be infected. And she can be sure that she won't transmit hepatitis C to her baby. So I consider that a win, win, win. It's a win for her because she doesn't have to worry about liver disease. It's a win for the community because she's not at risk to spread it to anyone else. And it's a win for her children because they won't be hepatitis C infected. And that's one of the great things about hepatitis C these days is we win a lot
0: Risa is the type of patient you see every day who had significant challenges, including opioid addiction, but she still managed to complete treatments and achieve cure. And keep in mind that this outcome is possible for most of your clients who are HCV-infected with the right support and treatment. You might wonder what all this recent success with HCV means for the broader population. Can effective treatment for HCV change the epidemic in your local center or region? or even across the US or the world. The World Health Organization, or WHO, has set aggressive targets for HCV, which they call 90-90-90 by 2030. They want 90% of those infected to be diagnosed, 90% of eligible people to be treated, and 90% of those treated to be cured. With regard to addiction medicine, the WHO cites a goal of having 50% of people who inject drugs covered by harm reduction services. If these goals are met, the WHO projects a 70% reduction in HCV incidents with a 50% reduction by 2020. And the ultimate goal is a 60% reduction in HCV-related deaths. Here we are in 2017. What's it going to take to reach these goals? Dr. Sulkowski again from ASAM.
1: But We've got a lot of work to do. This is a recent study from Norway. And they looked at persons with opioid substitution therapy, they have about 10,000, of whom 3,700 are hep C infected. They've only treated 14% over the period before these oral therapies. So thus far, we've not done a good job of delivering treatment to those with high risk of hepatitis C and high risk of transmission. Now this is a modeling study, and I'll go through it relatively quickly. But if you look at column B, That's prevalence of disease. So if among a population of persons who inject drugs, the disease prevalence is 25%, 25% of the injection population has hep C. This is the care cascade. Step two is improving testing. Step three is improving linkage to care. Four is both testing and linkage to care. Five is improving adherence. And you can see that steps one through five, you don't really budge very much from the number one, which is the current baseline. So you can test you can link to care. You can adhere to treatment. But where you really get your decrease in prevalence is by treating everyone. Number six is starting treatment at F0, minimal liver disease. That means taking those 30-year-olds, those 20-year-olds, those 18-year-olds, and treating them to prevent transmission. If you do all of these things, the prevalence in 10 years will only be 5%. And in Baltimore, we are trying what we call microelimination projects, working with an addiction center to lower the prevalence in their unit to 5%. We think it's possible, but I can assure you it's not
0: easy. As Dr. Sokowski says, reducing the burden of HCV will require a multi-pronged approach, beginning with improved screening and linkage to care, early initiation of therapy, that is, before the onset of liver disease, and coordinated efforts by treatment clinics and addiction centers to ensure adherence and follow-up. The take-home message here is that engagement with multiple interventions by caregivers in addiction centers and treatment clinics can meaningfully impact a global epidemic, one that is now disproportionately affecting young Americans, many of whom struggle with addiction. Here's Dr. Sokowski from the ASAM stage one last time.
1: Now, just on March 28th, the National Academy of Medicine announced that in the U.S., hepatitis C could be eliminated and 90,000 American deaths prevented by 2030 with better attention to prevention, screening, treatment, and creative financing for medicines. And they also point out that viral hepatitis is simply not getting a sufficient priority in the United States. So this was a report that came out a week ago. We'll see where it takes us, but certainly a lot of work to do to deliver these treatments. So some take-homes, hepatitis C treatment is recommended for nearly all patients. There are multiple regimens, six for genotype 1, and cure rates exceed 90%. Elimination may be possible, but it will require prioritization along the entire care continuum, testing, links to care, and access to treatment, and prevention of reinfection among those at risk.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the DKB Radio Hour. Thanks to Dr. Sokowski, Dr. Chung, and Dr. Brady for joining us today. Please look for future episodes of the Radio Hour when we discuss HIV and other topics. To receive CME or CEU credit, take the post-test at www.starthcv.dkbmed.com. I'm host Spencer Cannon, thanking you for your time.